Well, good morning once again, and happy Easter once again. I'm, uh, I'm fairly fortunate that I don't have any pollen allergies. It's, uh, it's uh, quite aromatic up here, surrounded by all these Easter lilies. Smells kind of like I'm standing in the, the perfume section at uh, Bloomingdale's or something, but it is really a uh, really beautiful smell. So, all right. Um, if you would, open your Bibles, or the, or the sermon text is printed in your bulletin. We're, we're turning to Luke's Gospel and chapter 24, and it is the, it's the last chapter in Luke's Gospel, and we're looking at the very last part of the last chapter of Luke's Gospel. Um, chapter 24 has three instances of the appearance of Christ, or the, or the empty tomb appearances of Christ, and the first one takes place when the women go to the tomb and they find that it's, that it's empty, and they're startled, they're, they're baffled, and then angel tells them, it's all okay, he is risen, and, and they go and they tell the disciples, and they're like, yeah, right, he's not risen, this is crazy. And then, um, the same day, Easter Sunday, there are two disciples, a couple disciples are heading towards Emmaus, a town a short distance away, and Jesus approaches them, but they don't recognize him. And he, he, Jesus explains, though, why, um, why the Messiah must have been crucified. And then he ate some bread with them. And as soon as he eats bread, their eyes open up. They realize it's Jesus, and he disappears. And on this very same day, our scene takes place. This is when the disciples, they return to Jerusalem. They're all hiding away in a room. The door is closed, all right? And then Jesus appears in their presence. How would you have responded to all the news that the crucified Jesus has been seen? Would you have longed to see him yourself? And if you saw him, how would you have responded? Our sermon text is Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 53. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still disbelieving for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we thank you for these words written to us, these eyewitness accounts that show us the details of the, the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, your son, the one who gives life to all flesh, who turns to him. We pray that this spirit which is spoken of in this text would be upon us as we as I preach this word and as we hear this word preached. We pray that our eyes would be open anew and afresh to the truth of the resurrection and its meaning for us. In our lives, we pray. Amen. You know, it's kind of part of human nature that we become comfortable with things. It's not necessarily how we set out to begin, but we become comfortable. We become comfortable with larger pant sizes. We become comfortable with troubled relationships. We become comfortable with stagnant careers. All kinds of things we become comfortable with, right? It's true, isn't it? We become comfortable with things which, at the, at the outset, uh, we, we wouldn't think that we would naturally be comfortable with. And guess what? So too Easter. There's a tendency in our modern minds to become comfortable with Easter. Uh, the, proper, the, the, the popular approach today is to spiritualize Easter. That is to say, it, it wasn't a literal resurrection from the dead that we are celebrating on Easter Sunday. No, the, the story of the resurrection is just simply to tell us that, well, that there is life after death and that after winter comes spring and then out of the ashes of sorrow, new beginnings can take place. Many, many people don't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus's spirit lives on or his teachings live on. But his physical resurrection, well, that was made up a couple hundred years later by by people who had an agenda. Now, it's as if Luke was writing this passage with us in mind. He's trying to tell you that if you try to spiritualize the resurrection, you're going to miss out on the meaning and the truth of Easter. See, Luke Never sh- Luke shows us that we're, we're not to be comfortable with Easter. What, what he shows us is that Easter brings a terror that leads to a joy, but nowhere is there comfort. Look how his disciples responded. Look how uncomfortable they were. Even though Jesus enters with the words, peace to you, how did they respond? They were startled, frightened, troubled full of doubts and disbelief. Luke shows us the message of Easter. The message of Easter is that Jesus is literally resurrected right now in body and flesh. He is alive. And our initial response is not to be one of comfort, but one of terror. But then as we stand in the presence of Christ figuratively speaking here this morning, and our minds are opened, as the disciples' minds were, we come to experience the joy of the resurrection, the joy of Easter as well. So those will be our two points this morning. We're going to look at the terror and then the joy of Easter. First, there's a terror that transforms how you see Jesus. Because Jesus is physically resurrected, that means that he is, he is Lord. It means that our proper response to Christ is to, is to turn to him, to, to find our life in him, to give our life to him, because he is the, the Lord of life. 
You know, St. Paul was once in Athens, that great city, ancient city of Athens, and he went up on Mars Hill. You can read the account in Acts chapter 16. That's the other New Testament book that Luke wrote. Um, He's in Athens, and he's up on Mars Hill, and he's preaching before the Areopagus. These were the brightest, brightest thinkers of the day. And every day they gathered to discuss the latest, greatest truth or philosophical insight or ideas. They were always seeking. They were always eager to learn. And at first, Paul's words mesmerized them and they they resonated with them. Here's what he began to say. He said, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. See why these philosophers really liked Paul's words so far, uh, seeking and finding. Uh, they, they love the idea of seeking and finding after some sort of divine truth. Why is that? Because that's how we humans are wired. We like to seek and to find and to be on journeys of inquiry. That's what all the world's religions attempt to do. They attempt to find some clues or some sort of truth that, that points us on the right direction. And so these philosophers in Athens are all nodding their heads in approval at these words about seeking and seeking after. That is until Paul essentially says, the search is over. Here's what he says. He says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Raising him from the dead. The the resurrection of Christ uh, made these philosophers uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. Paul was saying this. He's saying, it's time to stop. The time is now. He is here. It is settled. The truth is on the table. For centuries, people lived in ignorance, searching around, trying to make sense of, of life. But, but now the times where ignorance are, is over, the facts have been laid out for all to see. And so the proper response is to stop searching, but rather to turn and to repent and to believe. See, these philosophers knew that the resurrection, if it were true, meant something that no other religion or any other worldview or philosophy meant. Now, some will say, but Mark, aren't there other religions and that, have, that have claims about people being raised from the dead? And it's true, even within Christianity. You look back in the Old Testament, there's Elijah raised that, that widow's son from death to life. And then we can certainly we all know about Lazarus, that Jesus raised from the dead. But Jesus' resurrection is different. How so? Jesus' resurrection is completely unique. There is no other resurrection like Jesus' resurrection. Look at Lazarus, for example, who Jesus rose from the dead. Lazarus, someone had to roll away the stone so that Lazarus could get out of the tomb. 
And when he came out of the tomb, if you read the account, he was still wrapped in all these mummified, like, linens. It, he could barely move, and people had to unravel Lazarus, and he's finally, you know, that was Lazarus being raised from the dead. But not so with Jesus. With Jesus, the, the, when the women went to the tomb and they saw that it was empty, what did they see? Did they see that Jesus is linens from his burial were all piled neatly inside of the tomb. And when they got there, the the stone had already been rolled away. Think about it. Why was the stone rolled away? I mean, we just saw in this passage that we just read that Jesus has, has a physical body that is still somehow able to enter into closed doors, into rooms that are locked. Why, why would he then need the stone rolled away? Why was the stone rolled away? Well, Jesus rolled the stone away, not so that he could get out, but so that we could get in. So that we could experience the awe and the amazement of an empty tomb. My friends, you can still do that today. You can still be awed and amazed at, at the empty tomb. That Jesus is risen. He's no longer there. Jesus, is, Jesus being raised from the dead is like no other person being raised from the dead. Check this out. Think about it. Death lost its grip on Lazarus, and he rose. But guess what? The grip of death came back to poor Lazarus. And I call him poor Lazarus. Why? Because imagine having to die twice. But not so with Jesus. Jesus broke the bonds of death. Jesus didn't rise from the dead to die again. No, he rose and, and he lives forever. The tomb is, is empty. Jesus has, he has broken death itself. He's risen. He lives on. Verse 51 says, tells us that Jesus parted from them and was carried up into heaven. My friends, we can't just be comfortable with this fact. I mean, there's a healthy fear that goes along with the resurrection, that goes along with, with Easter. The implication of the resurrection is that Jesus is the divine victor over death. And that he is now alive and seated and reigning and ruling in heaven above. Before the apostle John died, probably somewhere around A.D. 90, he was brought into heaven. You can read the story. It's in Revelation uh, chapter 1. He was brought into heaven. And, and, and let me just read what, what he said. He says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He, here's John. He knew Jesus. He was his buddy. He loved Jesus. But there's, there's something about the risen Lord that, 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 that doesn't bring comfort. It brings an awe and a reverence. His holiness is beyond compare and imagination. And here is this disciple. He's brought into his presence and he fell at his feet as though dead. Check this out. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And check this out. And I have the keys of death in Hades. Quite a claim. That's not something you get comfortable about. That's something if you just take time to think about it. Cuts inside of your soul and causes you to say, if this is true, this man who is raised from the dead is, has life in himself and he, and he has power over all life and death on earth. 
that, that, that you can't go skipping away to brunch. You've got you to allow that to, to, to penetrate our souls. It causes us to, to sit up and say, well, what does this mean for me today? The resurrection is not meant to make us comfortable. There's a certain terror that comes with Easter. And it's appropriate. The disciples experienced it. Now, what does this mean for those philosophers back with Paul? What does it mean for you and me? Well, it means the search is over. The day of repentance is here. You know, all of the religions try to put together clues and, and, and truths that, that point you towards a way of living your life. But Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus says, I'm not a clue that, 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 that points you in the right direction. I'm, I'm the one to which all the clues point to. Easter says the search is over. It's time to repent. That was why the resurrection was so in their face. That's, that's why these philosophers um, knew that what Jesus' resurrection meant, it was uncomfortable. And, and it makes us uncomfortable, too. In America, we live in a spiritual climate where, where many people characterize themselves as, as being on a spiritual journey. They'll say they're spiritual but not religious. I hear all the time, and I get it. At a certain level, I understand that. But, and they're open to all kinds of teachings that kind of, kind of recalibrate their spiritual journey. And so for them, true spirituality, though, is, it's all about the seeking. If you claim to have found something, well, then you're, you know, how do you know for sure you found something? It's true spirituality is all about the searching. But Easter says the search is over. God has come to us. He's expressed his desire to forgive us through Jesus, his son. Jesus came to take our sins upon him, that our sins may be cast away, that we might have peace with God. This cost him his life. And it gives us life when we trust in him. So the proper response to Easter isn't to, isn't to water down the resurrection to make it more comfortable. The proper response to Easter is to, is to see our need for Christ and to repent. Now for the joy. You know, it's the same resurrection that elicits terror that also brings us joy. Because Jesus was, is literally physically resurrected from the dead, he's able to turn our terror into joy. Now, when you look at the disciples, when they saw Jesus, they like totally freaked out, didn't they? Um, they thought they saw a ghost. That's what they saw. And so Jesus, with compassion upon them, tries to, to calm their anxieties. And he says, he says touch me. <laughs> does, does a spirit have flesh and bone? You know, he's like, look, look, I, I still have the marks from, from two days, three days ago. It's here. It's still on me. Do you notice their response? It's really amazing. In verse 41, it, it says that they, they continued to disbelieve while at the same time they were full of joy and marveling. It, what stood before them was something that was too good to be true. You've had experiences like this, haven't you? When, when something just too good to be true, you, you can't even believe it, and yet it's right in front of you, and it fills you with, with disbelief and joy at the same time. My wife had one of those experiences with me uh, back when we were... We've been dating six months, loved her, and we kind of were talking about marriage stuff, but she wasn't just... She didn't think it was coming this soon. We were on a hike on our favorite trail right by this beautiful creek called Pickle Creek in Hahn State Park. It's in Missouri, so it's not nearby. It'd be quite a trek. But, so... 
you know, we stopped along the way and this beautiful creek going by and I get down on, on one knee and, and I say, Leslie Lovejoy Schmidt. That's her maiden name. A lot of you don't even know that. Leslie Lovejoy Schmidt. I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? She started laughing. She goes, ha, are you for real? Uh-uh, no way. Uh-uh, are you for real? And so I go, I go, do you want me to ask you again? And she said, yes. I, she was saying yes to marrying me. I thought she said yes to me asking her again. So I go, Leslie, love Joy Schmidt. I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? She says, yes, yes, yes. All right. So that's the picture of what we see here. It's a, it's a, really? This can't be happening. It's too good to be true. It's, there's astonishment and there's joy. And I, I think now she's maybe changed her opinion about me. But no, she still loves me. She would probably still do the same thing. I'm going to have to ask her three times next time. But uh, there is no next time. All right. So. The disciples were thinking, they're standing before Jesus, they're thinking, yes, this is just too good to be true. So what does he do? He says, you got anything to eat? And they give him, what does it say? Give him broiled fish. Luke's point is this, and don't miss on this, okay? This, Luke's point is this, this was a, a Jesus physically raised from the dead, right? Physical fish requires a physical body in order to consume it. This is not some sort of spiritualized resurrection. So the disciples' terror turned to joy when they saw Jesus. It also turned to joy when they heard from Jesus. In verses, between verses 44 to 47, twice Jesus says, Luke writes, He said to them, See, the words of Jesus helped the disciples make sense of this amazing thing that was standing right in front of them. And it caused them to rejoice and to worship. Verse 44, then he, that's Jesus, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus had been teaching them as they've been following around for three years that that the Old Testament is really all about him. It it points to him. No doubt at some point he would have said, hey, guys, hang hang around eating some food or whatever. You know that first Passover? Remember that? Remember when when Moses was in Egypt and and all the Israelites were there in bondage? Remember how our people left? There was a Passover. God commanded that all of our every family would, would kill a lamb. And take the blood and sprinkle it across the door. And because of that, there was atonement for the sins in that household. And God's judgment would pass over. Right? You know what day Jesus was crucified on? It's Passover. It's it's no wonder that, that, that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus coming to him for the first time as he's baptizing in the Jordan River, says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus had been teaching his people, no, the whole Old Testament points to me. God has been planning for me to come and to to take on flesh as the God-man and to live the life that you should have lived and to die the death that you deserve so that that by his death um, we have life. He had explained that all to them. He told them numerous times when you read the Gospels, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to rise. And what did they do? Yeah, we believe it. No, they didn't believe him at all. He told them three times and they're still fighting over who's going to have the, sit on the thrones in the kingdom. They didn't, they didn't get it. It, it was, the disciples were slow to embrace Jesus' mission. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us a couple things. 
It tells us that belief doesn't come naturally to us. Right? You know, it's contrary to human nature to believe in a resurrected Christ. And so that's good news for some of us here. Because some of you, you're a little bit skeptical. Guess what? You're in good company. It also tells us that we need Jesus to do for us what he did for his disciples. What did he do for his disciples? Well, in verse 45, we see that he opened their minds so they can understand all that happened. The disciples' minds were, were closed. They loved Jesus. They wanted nothing less to do than to follow him and, and live their lives for him. But their minds were, cl- were closed off as the real reasons why he lived and walked on earth. They weren't open-minded. Now, let me ask you. Are you an open-minded person? Before you're quick to respond, you should know that research has shown us recently that we aren't as open-minded as we think we are. A group of researchers from Northwestern University, University of North Carolina, and our own state university of New York, they explain that we engage in what's called motivated reasoning. Write that down, Google it later. Motivated reasoning. Let me explain. Here's what they write. They say... Rather than search rationally for information that either confirms or disconfirms a particular belief, people actually, check this out, seek out information that endorses what they already believe. That's why you watch the news channel. You do. Our tendency is to seek out information that supports what we already believe to be true. And when challenged by evidence that should correct our beliefs, we tend to engage in elaborate rationalizations in order to provide an alternative explanation. Researchers say that we do this at a subconscious level. We're not even aware of it. My friends, it means we aren't by nature open-minded people. Let me give you another example. When was the last time you watched on some news show where they had you know, people from pundits from both sides of an argument up there? When was the last time you heard somebody say, you know what, that was a really good argument you had? In fact, you've challenged me to the point where I need to rethink my theses. I'm going to come back at a later time and I want to talk with you. When was the last time you saw that? Have you ever? No. What do they do? They always go to their talking points. They rehash the old standby arguments, right? And it's not just the talking heads on the news channel. This is you and me. We do this. And the disciples did it as well. They had in their mind who Jesus was supposed to be. They wanted Jesus to be a revolutionary teacher, charismatic leader. They wanted him to be the one who led the revolt against Rome to free God's people. But that is not who Jesus is. All the evidence points elsewhere. My friends, true joy will come into your life when you stop approaching Easter through motivated reasoning. And rather allow the evidence point you to who Christ is, why he came, why he died, and what it means for you. There are a number of points that I could make this morning to illustrate the kind of joy that God gives us. could talk about having our sins forgiven and know we're at peace with God. But there's one thing I want us to look at here, and, and, and that's what the resurrection tells us about our future if you're in Christ. It tells you this, your future in Christ is a resurrected future. It goes contrary to to the two main ideas in our culture today. One, we have the secular humanist. That's where I came from. I became a Christian when I was 29. I was categorized myself as a secular humanist. A a secular humanist is someone who doesn't believe in the spiritual. The the body is all that there is. And and so consciousness is really, it's just just a highly evolved chemical uh, reactions inside of a person's brain. All right? And so... Really, when a person dies, then that's it. There's no spiritual reality that lives on. And so for a secularist or humanist, really there's no difference between human matter 
and the matter of a three-toed sloth, per se, or a, a sunflower, or a slug. Matter is matter. When matter dies, that's it. So for the secularists, the priority is on the physical, not the spiritual. But then there's those who put the priority on the spiritual against the physical. Those, some of those on Mars Hill where Paul was talking, they would have been Platonists. Uh, many of the ancient Greeks, they, they felt the body was bad, it was corrupt, it was evil. Only oh, the spirit is good, the spirit lives on, the spirit is eternal. And for, when they heard the gospel, when they heard that God took on flesh, they said, that's ludicrous. No way. And if this God who did take on flesh rose from the dead, that'd be even worse. Why would you come back into the flesh if the spirit is the only thing that's good? Those are the two competing views then and today. A lot of people think Christianity is option two. A lot of people think that Christianity is about, oh, well, all the good people, when they die, they float off to heaven and, and they get these little angel suits or something and they just kind of float around. And it's you know, kind of boring. You've got a lot of old magazines to read and stuff. You know, that's what people have the idea of what heaven is. But Easter tells us otherwise. Easter tells us that Jesus is the prototypical risen human being. And in him, we will find similar existence in the age to come. Yes, right now in heaven, there are people who have departed, who belong to God's family. Their bodies are in the grave or they're cremated or who knows where they are. They're scattered all over the place. Um, their spirits are with the Lord. But Jesus has promised today when he's going to return. The whole, all the Bible is saying God's not abandoning his creation No, he's going to renew and renovate it and restore it. The physical isn't bad. Check this out. We are made as, 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 as a synthesis of physical and spiritual. That's what a human being is. You tear that apart. That's why death feels so unnatural. That's why the resurrection should be something that is so well received by us. Because the promise, the eternal promise, is you in the physical body, although something like Jesus is, which is able to go through walls. That's pretty cool. Jonathan Edwards says we have five senses now, but perhaps on, on that day we'll have maybe like a thousand senses. That's the hope of the gospel. That's what the resurrection proves to us. I'm sure at some point Jesus was sitting around with his disciples eating more broiled fish and, um, and he probably said to him, he probably said something along the lines like, what you see, this is what you're going to get. I didn't come just to die for your sins, I came that you might have life. And this is what it's going to look like. You're going to be physical. You're going to drink wine. You're going to run. You're going to be creative. You're going to, you're going to have wonderful, beautiful things to do. Uh, you're going to see me in all my glory. That's what's coming for those who are in Christ. Jesus was raised from death to life so that in him we have the same experience coming our way. So what we see is the the same reality that causes terror, the resurrection of Christ, also brings us joy. The resurrection causes us terror because it says that God is alive. Christ is risen. He is ruling in heaven. And the world will want to be purged of all evil. Therefore, today is the day to repent and to turn and to turn to Christ. Perhaps, perhaps you need to do that here today. Perhaps you just need to turn and give your life to God to be thankful for what he's done for you in Christ Jesus. Don't worry about what your friends will think. Just give your life to Christ. If you need a little help, there's a prayer in the back of your bulletin. You can pray that or pray whatever you want. Just give your life to him. And you can, this promise will be yours. The terror will turn to joy. And the resurrection does cause us joy. It means that our sins are forgiven, that the sacrifice is real. He just didn't die for our sins. He rose with victory over them. 
And so the resurrection means that all who trust in him will be resurrected to fullness of life in the age to come. So my friends, may we no longer be comfortable with Easter. May May we, with reverent fear, turn to Christ and find our life in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news. We thank you that you have not abandoned this world. We thank you that all terror on earth has been absorbed into the body of Christ. And that in Christ there is new life, not just for us, but for this entire universe. And that through him we have peace, everlasting peace with you. May we never be comfortable with this truth. May we still tremble with the fact of the resurrection. But may we tremble with joy and astonishment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.